stand for the second scripture reading, which is Ezra 1, 5 through 11, found on page 458 in the Pew Bible. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were there, are all who were about them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sejbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite things to do when Aaron and I will make new friends or when I meet new people and start to, to get to know them a little bit is to look at their old pictures. Especially, I like to see old yearbooks. And I like to see not only who had a mullet and who had like really feathered hair and, and all that kind of stuff and kind of laugh together about what we used to look like, but also I love to see if I can find that person's face now in their face then and vice versa. Look at the yearbook, see them as a fresh-faced 18-year-old kid and then look at them now and go, huh, I think I can see that. And you know, it's, it's so interesting, even when someone is incredibly old, you can still see often when you look at a picture of them in their youth. There's a picture of Ruth Howe uh, amongst a large packed sanctuary, the old sanctuary over there where the library is now. You can see the picture in the narthex. Ruth has been with the Lord for quite a few years, but when I met her, she was in her 80s and I think her, her mid to late 80s. And yet when you look at that picture of her as a young woman in the 1950s with a baby on her knee, and then you looked at her when she was an old woman, you could go, I mean, there'd be no mistaking. That is her. I also remember one time I was at Ellen Kern's house and she brought out her old, oh, class of whatever, 19, I don't know, uh, probably going back into the 40s. Uh, and she said, this is our graduating class. And I said, that's Chuck Gibbs. And I pointed at a picture of this guy with this thick, like, black Elvis hair and this quaff. And she said, yes, that is. And I looked down, there's his name. I could just see him in his, his face as a youth. I could see who he was, who he would become. This also happens with our children, right? When, when Calvin was a younger boy, if I was with him and somebody saw us together, they'd say, wow, your son looks an awful like, lot like you. If Aaron was with him, they'd say, wow, your son looks exactly like you. But now as he's growing into more of a young man and his jaws squaring out and things, people look at us together and say, whoa, that's definitely your son. You guys look so much alike. And I say, sorry, man, these are the cards that you're dealt but, you know, it's an interesting game and a fun exercise because people change over time. From youth to adulthood, certainly, and from generation to generation, you may see some similarities, but you're dealing with an entirely different person. Maybe we might say, in a lot of cases, from youth to adulthood, you're dealing with an entirely different person. And that is what is so comforting about our God. 
to look at a picture of him, so to speak, in the Old Testament and now at creation and at the consummation of all things, he does not change, not in the least. Our Lord, according to Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, we read, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I prefer the King James there. There is no shadow of turning. There is not even the slightest difference of the way the light might hit him, for he himself is the light. And because of that, as God's people, if we want reassurance about the future, we can just look to the past and see who God was and what God has done and know that that's who God is and what God will do. In the hallway here, there's a quote from Adoniram Judson, after whom our church is named, that the future is as bright as the promises of God. The promises are in the past. The future is in the future. And yet we can know that those promises will be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Well, here in the book of Ezra, we see people who are badly in need of this reminder. They have been in exile now for 70 years, roughly, and it's a very difficult thing when you are separated from the land that kind of defines you as a people, this promised land and this holy city where this temple is in which God's presence is and where your God is worshipped and you have been dragged away and you know that the temple lay in ruins and that everything has been crushed and you have been removed from it. And yet we see at the very beginning of this book of Ezra as we kind of walked through last week that God is at work reversing these things. We saw last week in Jeremiah 29 the context of that very famous verse. I'm going to keep reminding you of that context so the next time someone recites this verse to you, you'll know the context. We read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I mentioned last week that in Deuteronomy 28, we read about the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. They hadn't even entered the land yet. And God starts to tell them, if you turn away from me and go after other gods, I will remove you from this promised land. It's a privilege, not a right. Guys, don't forget that. And then in chapter 30, again, they haven't even yet entered the land. He starts to tell them, listen, if you will at some point be exiled, if I will rebuke you and drive you out, I will bring you back. And this is what he writes, Moses, hearing the words of the Lord. And when all these things came upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you 
And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this goes back to even before they dwelt in the land. Did you hear the repetition of that same phrase in both of those passages, which are separated by centuries? Restore your fortunes. This is language we read not only in Jeremiah 29, but in 30 and 31 and 32. Again and again, God says, when you have, because of your own disbelief, your own wandering hearts, your own rebellion, been exiled, been disciplined, I will bring you back. And he frames it as, I will restore your fortunes. And of course, we see that literally happening here in Ezra chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. The fortunes, the gold, the silver, all of these things that have been taken from them are restored along with much more. God is at work here reversing what happened with Nebuchadnezzar's wicked act of looting and destroying the temple and Belshazzar's wicked act of taking out those temple vessels and defiling them by drinking wine and strong drink and partying with them as if they were common things. Now God reverses that by restoring these things to be reconsecrated and sending the people back to rebuild that temple, to restore their fortunes. This is what our God has done, and this is what our God does. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning. We see here in this text a call to go, to rebuild, a call to give, and a heart to obey. This is kind of old school preaching where you, you block all these things off, and then you do them one at a time, Eh, once in a while, I like to do that. A call to go, a call to give, and a heart to obey. I think we see these three things laid out in succession here in Ezra chapter 1. The call to go, of course, has already come from Cyrus. Last week, we read the entire text of his decree. And we see this week that it immediately follows that the people obey this decree. He speaks, things happen. But of course, behind both decree and response, we'll find God's sovereign will stirring up the hearts, not only of kings, but of everyday people. And we begin our text in verse 5 this week with, Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, if you read then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses and the priests and the Levites, and think to yourself, that's kind of vague. I really would like a more detailed list of these people. You know, I'd like to know how many from each individual father's house and have really hard-to-pronounce names. You're going to love the rest of the book of Ezra, especially the lay leader. Should be lots and lots of fun. But here we see just a reference to the heads of the father's houses. Now we see a nation that's divided. It's divided from the very beginning into 12 tribes. Each of those 12 tribes is divided into clans, each of those clans into families, and each of those families here into father's houses. And it's from that bottom up kind of movement that we see this return happening. Yes, the decree can come from the, the emperor top down, but it's got to be grassroots in order for it to happen, for people to actually return to the land and do the hard and dangerous work of rebuilding the temple, reconsecrating it, and reinstituting worship in its midst. But it's still not the people 
who are making it happen. We see in verse 11 the difference between, I think, the NIV and the ESV. And I'm going to say there's not very many places where one is way better than the other, but this is where the ESV really shines. And I'm glad that we've changed our pew Bibles to be the ESV because the NIV refers in verse 11 to those who came up. Yeah, they came up. They came up out of Babylon and came up to Jerusalem. But in the ESV, there's a reference instead to those who were brought up. Those who were brought up. And you say, hold on, who's doing the bringing? And that's the question. And that's the point. You see, it's bad English. That's why the NIV did away with it. You remember from grammar class or rhetoric class or whatever, you never want to use the passive tense. The ball was thrown. You want to use the active tense. I threw the ball. You know, whoever. Richard threw the ball. That way you have an agent doing something. It's bad English, but it's good Hebrew and it's great theology. It's called the divine passive. We saw it again and again and again in the book of Esther which takes place in the same time period as the book of Ezra. Remember, the book of Esther is famous for not having any references to God himself. God's name is not mentioned. Uh, the, the idea of God is not uh, kind of explicitly mentioned. And yet, again and again, we saw that divine passive. The people were saved. Mordecai was vindicated. And every time that happens, you say, who's doing this? Who's behind the scenes? It's this God who does not change, and who is always there for his people, always faithful to his covenant. And in this case, he is the one who is bringing them up. And that language, too, is important. If you write in your Bible, you may want to underline every reference to bringing up people. Verse 5, verse 11. What does this language consist of? Is it referring to the fact that they're going northward? No. In the biblical language, north isn't up. Don't ever think of things in, in those terms when you're reading the Bible. Up would sometimes mean you're actually going to go up in elevation. Often that's the case. But in another sense, up means up out of a worse situation into a better one. Or up from a simply man-centered point of view into God's presence. It's going to call to mind... And much of Ezra is going to call to mind the Exodus. When God's people were, at another time, in a foreign land, there they were slaves, there they were prisoners, they were not free to leave, they wanted to worship their God and they weren't allowed to, they wanted to go back to this land but they were not allowed to, and God then came and through a series of plagues and a series of miracles brought them up out of that land. From down here where they were to up here where he intended them to be. And it was all his doing. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, he defines himself or identifies himself at least as, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You were down in the muck and the mire in the pit in bondage and I brought you up. That's who I am to you. So this whole thing is going to call to mind the Exodus because it's almost like a second Exodus happening. And so they can look back to what God did before and say he doesn't change. He's going to do all this stuff faithfully again as he tells us to head back into the promised land and once again renew the promises. There's a little more going on here too, though, because in Exodus 34 and many times after that, we read, you shall go up to appear before the Lord your God three times each year. This is also the language of going to worship. On the way to Jerusalem, what would the people recite and sing exuberantly as they got closer and closer? But the songs of ascent, meaning going up. 
We're going up to Jerusalem. It's always up, up, up. Really good mixtape, I think. Shouldn't rise and fall, but be all rise. Just go up, up, up. This is what the songs of ascent were for them. We are going up into the presence of God himself. So the end goal of the Exodus was not to simply release them from bondage, but that God should dwell amongst his people and be worshipped by them, glorified in their midst. The same is true of this return from exile. It's not just, okay, you've done your time, you can come back now, hope you learned your lesson. The end goal is not just to bring them back to the land, but that God will again dwell amongst his people and be glorified and worshipped. And we can say the same thing of the great redemptive act that all of these things foreshadow, the cross of Jesus Christ. He did not die and rise again just so that our sins would be forgiven as if that's the end goal. The chief end is something greater. That he would dwell in our midst forever and be glorified. The Baptist conf uh, Confession, the Baptist Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Does anyone remember? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why he created us. This is why he redeemed us, to be glorified in us. And so as we look at the book of Ezra, this is all going to take the form of the temple being central to the book. And you have to propel yourself back into that world, not drag all these things into our world, and recognize that for those people in that place in time, the temple was the ultimate symbol of God's presence among his people. And so when we read this, it stands in for the, even, the idea of God's presence among his people, of, of communion with our God, worship, prayer, a relationship with him. All of these things are restored by God after his people had tossed them aside, discarded and disregarded them. The same thing will ultimately be the case with the cross. Communion with God. The ability to go into his presence. All of these things we had given up and he comes to restore them at great cost. I think we see a little bit more here in the fact that it's not just the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, but the priests and Levites are specifically singled out. They need to go back as well. A sizable group of people would be good, but without priests and Levites, there's not much point. If they're not going back in order to be a people who worship, who live lives of worship, the whole thing is pointless. Maybe not too popular for Baptists to quote Cyprian, but the truth is, in the words of Cyprian, if God is your father, the church is your mother. Visit your mom. Don't leave her hanging. The woman at the well, of course, we were talking about in, in Sunday school this morning, kind of reframes how we think of all this, no longer in terms of this one locale, this temple, this place you have to go to, but rather, Jesus says, in spirit and in truth, not here or there. If you're worshiping in spirit and in truth, God is truly worshiped. But again, throughout the New Testament, we see not priests and Levites, but deacons and elders and overseers and pastors and things being installed so that the people can be equipped and fed, so that the sacraments can be administered, so that life as a communal people of worship can be carried out. And this restoration, of course, does not happen all at once. Rather, it leads them back into the promised land once again, as it did in the Exodus, and it's a long trip don't worry, you're going to have my trademark bad maps 
on some inserts in the bulletins uh, in weeks to come, but it's probably about a four-month trip headed back. And Jeremiah had promised this, that as God had led them out for the exodus and into the promised land, he would do so again. Jeremiah 16, 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. What I've done before, I'll do again. And then in the future, people will look back to how I've done it again. And then they'll look back how, to how I've done it again and again. So there is a call to go. There is a call to build. And it goes out to everyone. Then there's a call to give. Because not all are going to go. In fact, only a small remnant is going to return. We see that, of course, Cyrus, the king who makes that original decree, leads by example. Another way in which Cyrus the Great was Cyrus the Great. What had happened when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple? Well, we read in Daniel 1, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. His God was Marduk. Second Kings 25, they start listing some of these things. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered, the fire pans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver. The captain of the guard took them away. And you might expect that a great empire would take all these things, just melt them all down, and say, hey, we've got a lot more gold and silver. But instead, they took them as trophies and put them into the house of their own god in order to show their dominance and the power of their own pagan deities. The same thing had happened to the Babylonians a thousand years earlier. The Hittites had conquered Babylon, and they took the statue of Marduk. Now, of course, there was no statue of Yahweh when they went into the temple. They may have expected to find one, but the second commandment forbids such a thing. The Ark of the Covenant had, I believe, long since been taken away, I believe, to Ethiopia, and I think it's still there, but that's a discussion for an entire different time. So Nebuchadnezzar did the best that he could. He took all the gold vessels and he brought them back and said, well, these are basically the gods of Israel. I put them at the feet of Marduk and now he's in control once again of all these other gods. And we're in control of all these gods' territories. It reminds me of that great Oscar-nominated movie. You probably have seen it so very many times, starring Al Pacino, a 1990s Dick Tracy. It was Oscar-nominated and he was Oscar-nominated for his part of Big Boy Caprice. Didn't win it for the Godfather. Didn't win it for the Godfather too. Didn't win it for Dick Tracy. They're all on equal footing. But in Dick Tracy, Pacino plays big boy Caprice, the big bad guy who's consolidating all the mob land power. And after he kills Lip, Lips Manless, which is Paul Servino's character, he says, get the word out. Lips territory is my territory now. Everyone who worked for him is working for me. Everything he owned, I owned. And then he grabs Madonna and gets into his limo. Just like in the Bible. We see this very notion in the idea of collecting gods, collecting peoples. Everyone who worshipped that god worships my god now. Cyrus, of course, as we said last week, didn't do that. Cyrus said, you'll pay taxes to me, but take back your holy items. Take back your idols. Go back 
and rebuild, if needed, the houses and temples of your gods and worship them in the proper way and put in a good word for me while you're at it. This was God at work through pagan thinking of a pagan king who was also a rather just king compared to the others who came before and after him. But again, the, the picture is your God couldn't save you. Now he and everything he holds dear belongs to my God or my goddess and serves them. And this would be idols, gold vessels, sacred objects, talismans. And Jeremiah predicts the return of these vessels, the, the restoration of their fortunes in the sense of gold and silver. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah 27, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Before they'd even left, he prophesied the return of these holy items. You see here another callback to the Exodus then. Because it's not just Cyrus who hears this, who issues the call to give and, and gives an exemplar uh, action, but it's also all the people then who begin to follow suit. Not just those who are Israelites who have chosen to stay behind, but even the Gentiles, Babylonians, Assyrians, living around them begin to give them gold and silver and many different articles. And the Hebrew here, the way it is sussed out and the words that are used is so reminiscent of Exodus 3 and 11 and 12 when as the people left Egypt, they left with gold and silver and spoils because the people were so eager to get rid of them. They had just had the plague, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh said, fine, leave, you can leave. And people said, yeah, get out of here. And they gave them the gold and the silver and all of these articles. And so this happens again, and it calls to mind once again, God is doing what God has done. Exodus 12, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord has given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians so that he let them have what they asked Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Well, they are not plundering their neighbors here, but it does remind them that God is once again providing all that they need. There is this exhaustive catalog of all these things that came back. Katie read it for you. I won't read it again. Bowls of gold, basins of silver, censers, etc., etc., etc. And this isn't even the half of it, by the way. Literally, if you add up all of those specific things that are mentioned, it comes to about 2,500. He says all of these things together, of gold and silver, these vessels numbered 5,400. I've only mentioned the most important ones. God has taken every little thing that was pulled away, every one of these pots, shovels, trimmers, spoons, bronze utensils, fire pans, basins, solid gold, solid silver, all the things we read that were taken and has restored their fortunes. He is faithful to his promise. This exhaustive catalog reminds us when he is at work, he will preserve us, even when we don't see it happening. I think of Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and he's at the end of his rope and he's hanging on to like a thread that's coming out of the bottom of the rope. And he says, God, I can't do it anymore. I'm the only guy you've got left. I'm the only prophet. I'm the only faithful follower of you in the whole country I just, I'm done. And God says, get over yourself. I have 7,000, 7,000 in that city of Samaria who have not bowed the knee to Baal, whose lips have not kissed him. You don't know what you're talking about. 
You're speaking out of turn. And here God had been at work even when the people had been losing hope. So all this stuff was taken. It was brought down by the, uh, what's this guy's name? You said it very well. It, it means like man of Mithra. Mithra being a Babylonian deity. Mithradat. And uh, he's the treasurer. He brings it, gives it to Sheshbazar. What a bizarre name, am I right? And Sheshbazar has been appointed governor, or it says prince here. It really just means chief. The, the guy in charge of this return. We'll get into whether or not Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same guy later. But at any rate, they now have their items they have what Cyrus has returned. They have what all of the people of all of their towns have donated. And there are two different kinds of donations, by the way. There are those that are for the trip itself, and then there are those free will offerings, which are for the rebuilding of the temple, reminding us again of the things that God has done before. Free will offerings were used in constructing the tabernacle in the wilderness, not a tax, not a tithe. Free will offerings were used for constructing Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. Once again, God says, you give what you will give, and I will stir your hearts up, and I will do what I will do in your midst and be glorified. Even that name Sheshbazar, it, it calls to mind a pagan idea until we're told that he is the prince, the Hebrew word meaning one who is lifted up. Who lifted him up? Well, in one sense, Cyrus, he appointed him, but God is behind all of this. He is lifting up people. He is behind the rise and fall of empires, kings, princes, and he is doing all of these things for his own faithfulness and his own glory. This is the free will offering then that's going to bring back a temple from the ashes into something that someday will blow people's minds once again. And I find it interesting that we have this reference to the free will offering, free will itself, in a chapter that is so steeped in the idea of God's sovereignty. You know, when we say Cyrus had his own ideas of what he was trying to accomplish, but God was kind of using those to puppet Cyrus into doing what he wanted him to do and fulfilling his own purposes, we might say, hold on, do we even have free will? Well, certainly we must, or there couldn't be free will offerings. I think the whole idea of the signet ring is a helpful kind of picture a king, remember in, when we went through Esther, that wasn't long ago, it was this past year, uh, that he had a signet ring, and he would give it, King Ahasuerus, king of Persia, he would give it to his second-in-command, at one point it was Haman, and say, go ahead and just do whatever, I trust you, and whatever you put your ring to, my ring to, it's done with the authority of me, on behalf of me, in my name. With the authority of the king, this is sort of what we see happening when Cyrus, thinking he's acting on his own, is doing something, and God's signet ring is behind it. He makes this call, and yet God is the one speaking through him. He is above, beyond, within, and under all that happens. He is sovereign. Well, he makes this call. They all heard the call, but they did not all heed the call. In fact, most of them did not. They may have... Uh, See, I hear the call to give, I'll give, but most of them did not go. They were not all stirred. Jesus himself said many are called, but few are chosen. And what happens here is in God's sovereignty, he actually stirs the hearts, even of unbelievers, even of unregenerate, convicts them, and draws them to himself. So we had the call to go, we had the call to give, 
And now we have the heart to obey, and we recognize that all of these are given by God himself. A sovereign God. If you have a heart to obey, God gave it to you. If you have faith, it was a gift. If you have repented of your sins, that was granted to you. Remember how the apostles got all excited because they said, we now see that it's not just us Jews who can follow Jesus. God has even granted repentance to the Gentiles. God grants it. And as always here, God makes the first move. And this is always how it works. The fact is, if God seems distant to you, he didn't move. You did. But when God is distant and we call out to him, he is always the first one when there is a need for reconciliation to make that first move. He seeks and saves. That's what Jesus said. I'm here to seek and save the lost. I came to do that. You couldn't come up to me to get saved, so I came down to you. That's the incarnation. That's God becoming flesh. And here the same thing happens. God makes the first move. Even when we return to him, he has made the first move. Philippians 2.12, we read maybe the most free will-based thing in the whole New Testament. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do what you know a saved person would do, and that will reassure you that you are a saved person. Look at your life and audit your life. Is this the work of someone who is filled with the Spirit doing the deeds of the Spirit, or someone who's doing the deeds of the flesh? Is the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Ask yourself these questions. The very next verse says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you are saying, wow, yes, God is at work. I am at work. We are at work. God made the first move, and he is working through me. Well, when God begins to stir hearts, we find only a remnant returns. This is going to become a major theme in the book. It is very timely, I believe, not only for the church at large, but for our church here at Judson Baptist Church. There, there are plenty of times throughout the course of Ezra and Nehemiah, which again is originally one book, when a lot more people, having come back, would have seemingly made things a whole lot easier. But those who returned are those whose hearts God stirred up. Same word is used for God stirring up Cyrus's heart and for God stirring up the hearts of the individual people, the heads of fathers' houses. These are the ones whom God has called. And this should reassure us today. When more than 90% of evangelical churches are struggling, either plateaued or declining in, in size and in budget and in resources, and we think if only we had more people in our remnant, things would be going so much better, be encouraged. We should be content. But we must not be complacent. And I think that's what we see in the book of Ezra. There's a remnant. Be content. But as the book goes on, there is a major battle being fought against complacency. This will be a broad theme throughout this whole book. You know, Jesus has called his own to himself. He says that again and again. My sheep, they hear the voice of me, their shepherd. They know my voice. They come to me. Only those whom the Father has called can come to me. Jesus says that again and again. But he also tells us, pray for workers for the harvest field because the harvest is plenty. And so we need to say, okay, we're content with who God has called, but we're not complacent. 
We will continue to seek after him. We will continue to do his work of building. They were building a temple. We are building indeed a kingdom. But God stirs hearts. Kings, governors, rulers, he stirs hearts. Your neighbor, he stirs their hearts. Do they know, do they know Jesus? Maybe not. Still, he stirs their hearts. We should be in prayer. Your, your neighbor in the pew, he stirs that person's heart. Your neighbor who used to be in the pew, and now you look over and go, oh, I haven't been here in a long time. He'll stir their heart. Pray for them. This remnant theology has got to be the next thing that the American church and the church in the West indeed hangs on to. This is where we're going to be more and more and more. Strangers and sojourners and aliens in a strange land where we don't have the upper hand or the majority as if the church ever really did. Maybe the outward church, the church visible, but not the church universal, the, the, the church militant, the, the saved church. Now we're just seeing things for what they are, that we are a remnant. On a day like today, when I look out and I go, wow, oh, summertime, can't wait for it to end. Can't wait for everyone to come back. Lisa, come back from Spain. I see where everybody is, and then I see them floating off to where they actually are. And I think, you know, there's really two main reasons in my mind that frustrates me. First is pride, right? If I were a better pastor or a better preacher or more magnetic personality, people would come, people, more people would be here, people wouldn't drift away from the church. Well, that's wicked. That's, that's almost making of myself and my ministry an idol. I have to repent of that. Second is, ee, we're getting by now. But if we lose one or two families, that'd be a big trouble. We'd be in trouble. I don't like being in this place where we have to trust God every month to get by. I'd like to have a little margin so that if God doesn't come through, we'll still be okay. i got to repent of that as well. And instead say, God, we have a faithful remnant. What you have done through these people in the past, you will do again. Because, and I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but there is no shadow of turning. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must be content. Just like you're content in your sanctification. Or you should be. The enemy comes in and, and, and tries to turn the, the shame screws into you and says, oh, look at how you still fail, you still fall, you still sin. And you got to say, listen, God's working on me. Jesus' blood covered my sins, and every day I take a little step further toward my life matching how he sees me. Get out of here, shut up, devil. And yet we can't be complacent and say, well, I got here, good enough. I'll go on sinning that grace may abound. That is condemned throughout the scriptures. There's a tension here, as there always is in good theology. Being content, but not being complacent. Complacency becomes the new idol for Israel when they're in exile. You never again, after they come back, find people in Israel worshiping idols. They've got a new one. It's invisible. It's complacency. Many of them got very, very comfortable there. In Babylon. It wasn't like in Egypt where they were slaves. You could get rich. You could have a position of power. We see that throughout these books in exile. You could become very comfortable. And even by the time this book was written, which is going to be many, many years down the road from where it starts, those who remained back in Persia were still more prosperous than those who had returned. They had a great deal more security than those who had returned to the point where it takes a divine impulse, a stirring up of hearts, 
to compel them to go back. And sometimes we require in our complacency of I'm going to go to church once every seven weeks, I'm going to read my Bible once every three weeks, I'm going to pray once in a while or for three minutes every morning, and then that's it. We need God to come in and stir our hearts. God will stir you up if you ask him to. I love the Hebrew word here, ur. Ur, which means to stir up or to wake up or rouse or to set in motion or to disturb. The Spirit of God sometimes comes in and disturbs us. And sometimes we need some disturbing. Some of you maybe have gotten a little too much disturbing. I don't know, but... When you need God to come in and to shake things up, you know, I, what I think of is that, that story in John chapter 5, I believe, uh, the pool of Bethesda, where the many people who were ill or, or who were paralyzed or, or who had some kind of uh, life-changing, life-altering um, injury, they would lie by this pool. And they would wait and wait for what they believed was the Spirit of God coming down or the angel of the Lord coming down and troubling the waters stirring the waters, and then they would try and hurry up and be the first one in because legend had it that when that happened, they would be healed. But of course, in that chapter, there's a man who he, he has no friends, he has no one to drag him in, and by the time he kind of crawls his way there, so many other people have gotten in, and the water's no longer being troubled or disturbed or roused or stirred up, and he can't make it work. And Jesus says, you don't need that, you need me, and heals him on the spot. All of our attempts often to stir ourselves up fall short of just simply saying to God, I'm not going to stop asking you to disturb my spirit and break my complacency until you do it. And here I am, like we said last week, in a position, a posture, anticipating revival. I'm ready, God, when you will move. And I am ready to receive whatever you're going to do. And I'm ready to hear the call, the call to go, the call to rebuild, the call to give. Whatever it is, give me a heart to obey. I love also that it means to wake up, to rouse. We've got a 14-year-old in the house. We do a good deal of waking up and rousing. Hey, get up. School's about to start. I might get out my, uh, I got a, a bell, one of those little bells. We got at Olivet College uh, when, when uh, Matt Zajac was playing football there. It's ding, 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 ding. That might be kind of fun. Now I love my kid. I want to keep a good relationship with him. But we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But we belong to the day. So let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We were once lost. We were in the pit and God brought us up, raised us up out of that pit from death to life. We needed to be awakened, but sometimes we doze off again and we need to be awakened again. Ephesians, we just read through and, and studied, what, maybe two years ago, Ephesians 5, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Indeed, the days are evil, but the remnant is called to walk worthy, to walk not as unwise, but as the wise. And we are crowded in on every side by the world and the devil, and even within we battle against the flesh. There's the world's assumption and insistence that religion, if there is any place for it, belongs barricaded within your personal life, your private thoughts, maybe within your household and your family, although even that is under fire today. But certainly, it shouldn't affect your work. Your ideas about God and these things you read in this Bible, they shouldn't affect your broader relationships. Keep that stuff all zipped up inside. This book of Ezra destroys that idea. God's sovereignty permeates every aspect of life. And so when we walk not as the unwise, but as the wise, think about the wisdom books. Think about Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Not in some of your ways. Not in a few of them that are, you know, bivouacked into the religion category or the Jesus category of your brain. In all your ways acknowledge him. Lean not on your own understanding. And where you are leaning on your own understanding, be in prayer. God, stir me up. Wake me up. Break up that, that soil that needs to be tilled so the Spirit can w- work in me. There are times when God's sovereignty, though, is less a source of comfort and more a baffling frustration. And that time can often be a difficult time to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to look back and say what God has done before He will do again. We know that that was the case in Ezra's day. They they wanted to look back all the way to the Exodus, but they kept looking back and just seeing an expanse of multiple generations stuck in Babylon. Stuck there, unable to worship their God, unable to live as they pleased. Yes, they could get rich, they could get comfortable, but they could not go back and, and make offerings to Yahweh. They could not in all their ways fully acknowledge Him because that would have required them to leave. It would have required a new exodus. And now they say, we must trust that God is at work the way that he was back then. And yet there are always going to be times, like what we read about in Psalm 22, as David writes this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From my words and my groaning, why are you so far? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. There are times when we want to look back, but there's so much darkness. There's so much of a sense of God's distance that it is hard to do. And when that happens, I think the thing to do is remember that Jesus himself spoke those words on the cross. He felt how you feel when God's sovereignty doesn't seem like a comfort, but seems like just a kind of thumbing of the nose at us. A spiritual joke. Remember that Jesus himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He loved us so much that he went through that darkness. And if we go through the darkness, he is there with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You comfort me. What does it look like then to be stirred up and awakened? Well, the answer is going to be different probably for every person. You probably know what area of your mind, heart, life, requires a little wakening, a little stirring up, a little disturbing. You know, you, you, you know when and where God needs to shake you and rouse you. And if you're 
purposely not thinking about something right now, that's probably the area in which it needs to happen. If we want to be in the posture of revival that we talked about last week, this is step number one. For God's people to say, God, where I have become complacent in my sanctification and said, hey, good enough, grab me, shake me, stir me up, send me back to the promised land. I've spent long enough in exile. This whole story of Scripture is about God restoring our fortunes for His glory. From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21, that's the story. It's restoring our fortunes for His glory. And we can look back to see how God will save us and restore us in the present and in the future. They looked back to the Exodus. We look back to the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus defeated sin and death on our behalf and then rose again for our justification. We look back to the mighty works of the Spirit among the apostles in the book of Acts. We look back and say, God, you did all that. You don't change. You're the same yesterday. You're the same today. You're the same forever. You know, I find it so odd. I I was talking about this uh, not that long ago with, with a couple of the guys. I find it so odd that in the Baptist church, where the thing that kind of sets us apart and we're named after has to do with baptism, we don't often talk about our baptism. If you're Lutheran, I, I, I married a Lutheran. You know, everybody does one good deed. Ah. Calvin went to Lutheran school. I got a lot of friends who are ministers and belong to Lutheran churches. I, lo- I, love, I love Lutheranism, actually. And one thing I love about it, among many things, is that they'll often say, remember your baptism. Call to mind your baptism. Or even in the Roman Catholic faith, you walk into a church, and if there's a blessing with the holy water or something, they you know, splash you in the face. You Remember your baptism. They can't, most of them. They were infants. They don't remember it. You can remember your baptism. I've had people over the years come to me and say, Pastor, I want to be baptized again. I strayed. I don't know. I, I feel like I kind of messed that one up. I got to start again. Baptize me again. No! Remember your baptism. What God did before, He will do again. Remember what happened before. Remember how He stirred you up and pray that He will do so again. Because there is no shadow of turning in Him. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be at work amongst our church, our remnant, even as you were amongst the remnant in Israel. That, Lord, there would be a call to go, a call to build. There would be a call to give, and that you would give us hearts to obey. That, Lord, where we need to be disturbed in our spirit, shaken, roused, stirred up, that, Lord, we would be ready, sensitive to the work of the Spirit. And, Lord, where we may be insensitive, we pray you would just, you would just clang that bell. Wake us up. Get us out of bed. Lord, that we would begin to serve you with a new zeal here at Judson Baptist Church. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.